Welcome to The Hot Dish. Today we're talking about something pretty disturbing and very personal. But we know that if it's happening in our family, chances are it's happening in yours too. And that's teens struggling with mental health and even going as far as contemplating or dying by suicide. We want to say right off the top that if you know someone that's in crisis, please call 988-SUICIDE-AND-CRISIS-LIFELINE. You can dial or text 988. Trained crisis workers are available to talk 24 hours a day, seven days a week, Heidi. Nearly 50,000 Americans died by suicide last year, unfortunately a 2.5% increase, according to the Centers for Disease Control. The World Health Organization designated October 10th as World Mental Health Day, and we want to mark this moment to tell you about our nephew, Brady Prochno. We're trying to pretend we're young, but the truth of the matter is he's our great nephew, which tells you something as well, folks. Uh, you know, the person who knows him the best is Bobby Prochno, and she would be our niece. Uh, she married our nephew, Michael. Bobby, thanks so much for coming on the show. And, uh, you know, just know, everyone, this conversation is going to be about suicide. Thanks, Bobby, for joining us. Can I just say this, Bobby? You are my hero. You have handled this challenge so well, and you have offered so much hope to so many people. So I know it's not easy, but we hope that the reach of the One Country podcast can also help other families. And Bobby, I get to add that you already were my hero just for marrying Michael. That was a <laughs> step in and of itself. How, how are you doing, Bob? I'm good, thanks. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Brady Prochno is someone that's near and dear to all of us. Bobby, why don't you give us a little uh, rundown of just exactly what happened? So we have four sons, and Brady is the youngest of those. Brady's always been kind of like a people pleaser, sort of a happy-go-lucky kid, always up for anything, always a smile on his face. And so when this happened, it was shocking for all of us. Brady is 17 now. He was 16 at the time, which was just a few months ago where, I mean, we're fresh off of this yet. This is still pretty raw for us. But in March, Brady tried to take his life. We had known that he had been struggling for a good year or so prior to that, that we knew about. We had seeked counseling for him. He had been seeing a therapist, but as we've gone through this and as we've gone along, I've learned so much more about the type of therapy that is available to people. He'd seen counselors in school. He had talked to us a little bit, but we really started noticing just more and more things with him that now, as I look back after this had happened, everything was right there in front of us. He had the obvious things, you know, he was struggling. He would have sort of meltdowns in the middle of nowhere. He would walk outside and just sort of cry and, you know, things like that that were super obvious at the time. But then as we kind of look back and think about it, there was a lot of, there were a lot of signs that we just didn't see. We sort of started assuming it and kind of determining that he, he had body issues. He's always been a bigger kid. He's 6'4 now, and he's been taller than the pack since I can remember. I turned 50 this year, and I had went on a vacation with my 
girlfriends and we hadn't even landed for 12 hours yet and I was getting ready for dinner and I met my friend at the door who sort of took me back to my room and sat me down and had told me what happened. Brady had shot himself. Everything from there was a blur. My husband and my third son, the one that's just a year or so older than him, were home when it happened. No warning. Nobody had really expected any of this. He walked in the door, apparently said, hey, how's it going? And went downstairs. And about 20 minutes later, they heard something and went down to find him. And so goes the beginning of that journey for us. So, Bobby, you talk about the signs being there now. Do you think people understand that? Uh, you know, you you didn't. I didn't. And I spent a ton of time with Brady. I think it could be. There's so many things that I go over in my mind again and again about with him. He lost his Grandpa Richo, you know, a year and a half before that. He lost his, my stepdad. Grandpa Doug, you know, he had a lot of loss for a young age to pe- of people that were very important to him. He's a big kid and he feels, he feels big. He, his heart is huge. And I think that might have been part of what he was struggling with. And even if it, if it wasn't the thing, it might have been something that just, you know, helped tip the scale a little bit for him. Mental health, suicide, ideations, those things, they don't have, there's no type. There isn't, it's the bad kid in town or it's the smart kid or it's the, there isn't a type for anybody that can feel this way. And I think that's the hardest thing for us is I have always been very, I I feel big too. And that's something that's always been in the back of my mind. My kids are hunters. My, My whole family is hunters. We have the means necessary around us all the time. But I always sort of just trusted that my kids knew better. We had a someone who took their life that was close to us down the street just last Christmas. And, you know, we've always talked pretty openly about these kinds of things with our kids, that if there's anything ever wrong, if there's something you can't come to us for, go to so-and-so. And we'd always heard from them I would never do that, mom. Of course, mom. I know, mom. I love you, mom. I would never do that. And sure enough, sitting thousands of miles away and it happens. And it was the most difficult thing I've ever gone through and am going through. But I am in a special club. I'm in a unique club where I get a chance to do it all again and do it better um, and do more. I go from blaming myself a lot to how would I have known? How could I have done anything differently? But the truth is, when someone is feeling the way they're feeling at that time, it's like I I had written it. It's just whatever it was at the time was just bigger than him. And there wasn't anything that anybody could have done. It was something he decided to do, whether he had clarity on it or not. I think the most important thing that you've said so far is, don't make an assumption that this can never happen to you. There isn't a type. There isn't, oh, those are the bad kids. Or those are the kids who are using drugs and alcohol. And those are the kids who 
attempt or die by suicide. The one thing I want to talk to you about, Bobby, is the fact that you have been so open about it. You had a Caring Bridge site. Last time I checked, I think you had over half a million visits to that site. And it was friends of friends, people you didn't know, and you can tell that by the comments, who were so grateful to you for your being so candid and open and aware of the struggles that so many, especially moms have, but so many families have. Your voice is so profound and so loud in support of families who are struggling with mental health and struggling with suicide. How has that changed your life, Bobby? Well, I'll tell you, when I started writing that Caring Bridge, it initially, you know, it wasn't me that even started it. It was our cousins. They had started it for us, the girls. So they helped me out that way. So then we could just get a broader reach. So I had started writing out just updates, like, you know, here's how he's doing today. This is what we're struggling with today. When I first arrived at the hospital and our family came together, we didn't expect him to live. We we really didn't. At, at the time that I came home, I was assuming I was coming home to organ donation and keeping him alive until I got there. And so when we got into the hospital, it was more of that for, you know, the, I don't even remember the first few days. It was just, we don't expect him to wake up. We don't expect him to move. We don't expect him to you know, breathe on his own, all these things that were happening and I was being told and we were being told. And it was so much on my mind. And someone had given me a notebook. I think my sister had given me a notebook just to sort of write things down that the doctor was telling us because I wouldn't be able to comprehend it probably very clearly. And I could come back to it. We have a lot of great resources in our family that were translating things and talking me through things. And I started the Caring Bridge site just to, first of all, first and foremost, give updates on how he was doing. But then it kind of, as I was writing things down from things that I was being told, I was I would just have random thoughts that would kind of pop through my head about questions to ask or maybe just how I was feeling. When I was on the plane to come home, I wrote pages of things on the hotel notebook that I brought with me. And I was just writing and writing and writing I was writing his obituary because I wanted it to come from me and I wanted to write down all the things that I could think of about him that were so amazing. And that kind of was, I carried that through to when I got back to the hospital. I said I had a little notebook and I was writing things down. And I found that writing them down made me just get them out of my head so I could focus on him. So when I started writing The Caring Bridge, I, I broke it up into... For the people that just wanted to understand how he was doing, here's how, here's today's update, here's how things are going. And then I added a section that was just like, okay, here's how I'm feeling about this. Because it was just a way for me to get things out of my head and things that I wanted to share with everybody about how amazing he was that didn't really have to do with how he was, you know, progressing. So I separated those things out. And those are the pieces I think that people started, they tell me anyway, that they sort of started identifying with maybe or relating to. I've had a couple people that have told me, you know, like when you wrote that, that's exactly how I was feeling or that's exactly like you could have been talking to me about myself. And I wasn't writing for anyone other than myself. 
selfishly. It was just sort of to get things off my chest, like I said, so I could focus on him. You know, I spent days and nights there and the middle of the night when all you hear is machines and you can't fall asleep. It was just the time for me to sort of collect my thoughts until I could get up enough energy and enough within me to start again the next day. I have to tell you that I also have a bit of a problem with people telling me things like that, like that it had helped them because honestly, I feel like a fraud in so many senses. People saying, oh, what you're writing is just helping me so much. And and I want to stop for a second and think, I'm helping you? Like I, I'm in this situation because I failed. I feel like I failed. How can you be telling me that I'm helping you? Because if I had done my job, he wouldn't be here. We wouldn't even be talking about this. But again, I have to just be joyful about the fact that I get to do it again. And if this, if anything that I had said can trigger a conversation or can spark a discussion, then maybe it's okay. If, if it can even spark as much as a discussion, then maybe that's what I meant to do. Well, I'll tell you this, Bobby, you know, they're right. And if you think that it in any way is selfish of you, you're wrong. Not only was it a great thing for you to do for yourself, but it truly was a great thing to do for, for everyone. When I got there, I have always enjoyed a, a very, very close relationship uh, with my nephew, Buddy's dad, uh, Mike. And, and so one of the reasons I tried to get there as quick as what I could is because I, I needed to see him. I just needed to talk to him. And, and, you know, he was going through all those emotions that what could have I done? What, what did I miss? How was I at fault in any way, shape or form? And so I think it was important for all of us to talk to each other about that because I did too. I mean, Buddy used to come down the hill where I live and, you know, that winter he would live in my fish house, you know, for a couple of days at a time. We hunted together all that fall. I mean, we always spent a lot of time together and I kept asking myself, Bobby, what did I miss? And so when I got to the hospital, one of the things that I thought it was my job to do was to talk to Michael about organ donation, was to talk to him about, you know, there might be a time where you have to give up this fight. And it was amazing to me that, number one, you knew that, you you guys knew that, number two, that you hung in there. Because both those things don't always go together, Bobby. No, and I think this is one of those situations where I look back and even now I think everybody thinks it will never happen. How many times have you said that to yourself? Like, it, it, oh, that'll never happen or thought that that'll never happen. And here I sit and it's just like one of those things when your mom would tell you not to do something and then you just do it because you have to find out the hard way. That's what this feels like. I appreciate the fact that when I when I was on my way home, it took forever. I remember looking around the hotel room and all I saw was every friend I had in the room on a computer or on a phone trying to get me a plane ticket home, which was so difficult. And then when we had our connecting flight, I turned around in an airport and there you were. There you were with Sue. And I can't even tell you that was the closest thing to home that I had at the time. It was what I needed right at that minute. 
it was just unfathomable to me to not be with Mike and with my family when this was happening and so far away. I kept thinking things like people would, people sometimes say to me, you know, like, oh, you have four boys. How can, you know, how how do you do that? And that kind of thing. And I, I think to myself, I do it just like everybody else does. And that's how that goes. But that phrase hit me like a ton of bricks. Oh, you have four boys. And all of a sudden, I don't. How, how, how do I go on without being able to say that? Or, you know, with my mom witch hug that they give me two on each side, how am I going to, how is life ever going to be the same? My daughter has frequently said when she has a baby, she wants to ship the baby home for you to raise for the first six years because you've done such a great job. And, you know, you can't look at your boys and not realize the wonderful job that you did. The fact that in this tragedy, they have not missed a beat. They have been there for you. They've been there for Brady. They've been there for each other. It's just such a source of pride. But people are probably now wondering, where is Brady now? What do we know about him? What's the outcome going to be kind of long-term? Well, we came back home from the rehabilitation facility in June. And so we've spent the summer just sort of, he's gone through therapies. He has speech, occupational, physical, mental health therapies we've done all summer. And he had to have neurological assessments as to to determine as to whether or not he could return to school. He's got some deficiencies yet, but going back to March when we were told he was probably never going to leave his bed to now, we've since moved for no other reason than it was always sort of a, a dream for us to be able to get a chance to live on the lake that we, you know, grew up on and our kids grew up on. And that opportunity presented itself and we decided to run with it at this point in time with where Brady is and how his recovery is going and the kid wants nothing more than to fish and to hunt and now we can do that outside our back door. It was just an opportunity that we couldn't pass up and so here we are. He's fully functional. He was paralyzed on his right side for the longest time and then went after we got down to Nebraska. He regained his speech. He regained his balance. He regained um, use of his right side. And so now when you run into Brady, you might not even really understand that anything had happened. He can talk. He can walk. He can play pickleball. He can do all the things. But he's got, you know, there's some deficiencies that we're still working through. He is now in school. We went from a where we were living, where it was hundreds of people in his class to I think there's 20 in his class. He's with a para two hours a day, and then he's got one, an additional class that he's with a larger group, but he has a lot of one-on-one. So he's only going a partial day right now, and we'll see how long that goes. But he's still exhausted, just completely exhausted. By the time that's done, he'll come home and he'll, you know, nap for a few hours. And it's really incredible. He can remember everything. He's got a great long-term memory. Short-term memory has been a little problematic, but we're working through that. His vision is 20-20. He's a little different in that he doesn't really initiate conversations as much as he used to, but he'll have the conversation. There's just some behavioral things that are a little different with him. But for the most part, I couldn't even write a better ending to this. Um, And we're nowhere near the end, but 
to be this far out with what happened and the type of injury that he had to him being out in Joel's front yard playing pickleball, you would never, ever, ever have convinced me that that's where we would be when I was on my flight home from Mexico. There's things that, you know, we may not get back. And the realization that you and Michael have of that, I think, is a strength as well. Brady was, ladies and gentlemen, a fish. I mean, he would run down Heidi's in my dock and he would jump off and he'd do what he called the whale. You know, he'd have his arms by his side and he'd go sideways and the kids just loved it. And he, he lived in the water this summer when we had him out on the pontoon, he was always the first to jump off, and he's not anymore. And, you know, someday I hope he is. And I think things are going to go slow. I mean, Bobby, I've seen him eat things that I've never seen him eat. <laughs> you know, he's 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 a vegetable guy now, uh, every now and then. And so some, some of that's just different. And it's, it's going to take some getting used to by not just his uncle, but his friend Joel. And I think that part of it is this brain injury. There's some aversions there. And there's also some things we have to be considerate of when it comes to how impulsive he is. He's just not keen on all the same things he was before. And and that's okay. But a lot of it still is also just recovery. He's got, you know, BBs in his head. He's got things he's doesn't want to see himself, things he doesn't want to think about, things he can't do from now on. He's got, you know, he can't have an MRI. Maybe he feels like it's something he shouldn't get his head wet. I don't I don't know, but there's just some abstract aversions that he has now that are just interesting. And and you know him, he was, you know, 260, 270 or something like that. And throughout this process, he lost 40 pounds. And I still go back to all of the things I worried about before, the body issues. Is that going to be a concern to him? Is he going to try to maintain that? How active is he going to be? You know, he used to be strong as a just an ox. He wasn't a big muscular guy, but boy, there was a lot of mass to that kid. He he'd just go and, you know, pick somebody up over his shoulder and drag him along. Well, now he has trouble lifting a five-gallon bucket, but it's okay. It's all these things that we just have to get used to and he has to get used to. It's a new normal, but the recovery isn't over and there's a lot left in him. I think a lot of fight left in him and I, I can only hope that he will continue to fight and work towards being who he is now. Well, Bobby, I mean, honestly, I can't say to people who were supportive, some of who are listening, you know, number one, really visit the Caring Bridge site. It's Brady, B-R-A-D-Y, Procno, P-R-O-C-H-N-O-W. And the poster's still up. And I think if you are feeling alone as a parent in some of your concern about your child and whether this is a problem for your child, there's a good site there, but you can also use the hotline and call 988. And this goes to a particular kind of policy problem, which is we don't have enough mental health workers in rural America. We don't have enough in Fargo, North Dakota. So we've got to follow through and get that mental health workforce working again. And so I want to just thank you, Bobby, for telling your story. Brady's journey is not done yet, but he couldn't be loved more. 
And I know you feel this way, Bobby. Thank you to everyone who said a prayer for Brady, everyone who sent good wishes. You know, his recovery truly is a miracle. And we don't know why some families get miracles and some don't, but we did. And no one, as far as a parent, could deserve it more than you, Bobby. And everybody, remember, 988, if you're struggling, if you know someone who's struggling, reach out, get help. Join the movement to get more mental health services into America, particularly rural America, where we are lacking in the help that so many families need. Thank you so much for listening. You know, to learn more about the work of the One Country Project, visit onecountryproject.com. And if you like the hot dish, or even if you don't, write us a review. We can take it on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcast. And to support the important work that the One Country Project is doing to elevate the needs of rural America in Washington, please visit onecountryproject.com forward slash give. Thank you so much. And we're going to see you in a couple weeks.